1: You can learn more about student visionaries of the year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: So I stood on Jan, the editor's Bosu ball today. That is not easy. No, I love Bosu balls. Yeah, I was thinking we should get one for the writer's room.
0: We should. We didn't get a treadmill. We should get a Bosu ball.
1: All right. We'll have Mary order one. Okay.
0: Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Sarah Fain, a TV writer and producer living in LA, and with me is my high school
1: friend and writing partner of 18 years, Liz. That's me, Liz Kraft. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles.
0: In this episode, we'll talk about red flags, why do we ignore them, and how can we stop Then
1: we'll interview Ben Blacker, TV, feature, comic book, podcast, live show writer. He does it all. And finally, Liz has a Hollywood hack that
0: fuses parenting and working. That's always nice.
1: But first, an update. Sarah, in episode 64, we talked about Fun Fun Fridays and how our line producer, Mark Rossan, puts on fun events on Fridays, such as an ice cream social, tacos, In-N-Out burgers. And we asked all of our listeners to offer non-food related Fun Fun Friday ideas. And wow, you guys came through big time.
0: Yes. There's Balloon Day, where everyone gets a balloon in the office and they do it with an Oprah voice. You get a balloon. You get a (laughs) balloon. Uh, They have
1: a bounce house extravaganza. That could be fun. Yeah, as long as there's no injuries. Yes, true. (laughs) Uh, They have coloring day where they bring in coloring books and boxes of crayons and assorted crafts. And then during lunch, everybody um, colors and chats. I would love that. That would be really fun. And then they have one that I think
0: other people (laughs) on our show would enjoy, but that we would not, which is the Macy's Day Parade Fun Fun Friday, where everybody makes a float. I think some of the departments on our show would be
1: brilliant at oh, this. Oh, yes. Our department. Forget about it. We would suck. They do it before Thanksgiving, and then it's like, oh, celebration. Yeah. Um, They also had a carnival day um, where they have a few outdoor carnival games like Ring Toss and beanbag Bag Throw and Plinko. Um, And they even did a scavenger hunt. That's so pretty ambitious.
0: They're really going all out yeah. with their Fun Fun Fridays. I kind of like the idea of a scavenger hunt on the Disney lot.
1: That's fun. If Someone <laughs> would arrange it. Yes, someone, not us. Um, and then Christine wrote in with an idea that I thought was great for Fun Friday, which is ping pong. She said her husband works at J.P. Morgan in a building with over 10,000 people, and they have ping pong tables in the common spaces for people to play and blow off steam. So she's saying we could rent a ping pong table and do a tournament and even have like fun um Trophies and prizes. So that's a great idea. Um, maybe if we get a season two. That would be that, that fun. That doesn't feel like a season one idea. Right.
0: <laughs> Early in season two before <laughs> things get crazy. Exactly. Please, God. Um, And then Sabrina said she's a chemist, and they have a loose dress code as long as safety requirements are met. That's very important. And the whole lab decided to tie-dye shirts one day to wear at a function with other departments, and it was a huge hit. She said, now a lot of us wear our shirts on Friday, and it really is fun waking up and exclaiming, it's tie-dye Friday. She said, I realize this may not work for every group, but it works for us as we're already just one acid stain away from being hip. (laughs) And, of course, I wanted to do a puppy party.
1: Yes. You had the idea of bringing in puppies from a local shelter and having, you know, everybody play with them. And it was we were really divided in the office about whether or not we wanted to do that. Um, It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened yet. Someone wrote in saying, you know, we should be more worried about the puppies and not about ourselves But as you pointed out, Sarah, it's good for the puppies to get socialized.
0: Yes, it really is. It's so important for puppies and dogs and shelters to meet different people and to be in different situations. It's really, really good for them and helps them ultimately get adopted. So even if they came just to visit and then had to go back to the shelter, it would be a good experience for them.
1: So again, puppy party. Puppy party. (laughs) So thank you to everybody who gave us suggestions. Uh, Now we just have to get our act together to implement them. Yes. That's a whole other level. We need to talk to Mark. Yes. Yeah, maybe he could implement them. <laughs> we
0: also wanted to tell our listeners about a super cool fundraising event for the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services that's happening in Los Angeles on September 22nd. It's a live reading of The Goonies starring all kinds of rad women. Gina Rodriguez, Nicole Byer, Eliza Koop, and Brittany Snow, just to name a few of the folks involved.
1: And every single dollar raised goes to the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. Uh, It's an amazing organization. And the Goonies, I mean, of course, is a favorite.
0: What could be better than the Goonies? So be sure to check out the project's Twitter. At The Goonies Live, and the Facebook and Instagram handles are at The Goonies Live 2018. The show will be at the Montalban Theater in Hollywood on Saturday, September
1: 22nd. And we'll put a link in our show notes at happierinhollywood.com. Okay, Sarah, it's time for From the Treadmill Deaths Of, in which we discuss what's most pressing in our work psyches. And this week, it's Red Flags. Um, And I got to thinking about Red Flags because I was reading a book called Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, and I was obsessed with this book. I've been talking about it nonstop.
0: Well, you and Marsha Clark have been reading it, and I mean, I'm behind because it
1: sounds unbelievably intense and great. Yeah, so what it's about is the book is about Theranos, a medical device startup that scammed all of Silicon Valley and how its charismatic founder, Elizabeth Holmes, conned everyone. She was only 19 when she started the company in 2003. By 2014, she was one of the richest women in America. It all started to go sour when an FDA report came out basically saying there were massive problems in the company. And by 2016, Forbes revised its estimate of Holmes' net worth from $4.5 billion to zero. And the company just dissolved recently. Yeah. Now, I'm obsessed with this book, Sarah, which, by the way, is going to be made into a movie starring Jennifer Lawrence. Yay. Yeah. Essentially, Elizabeth Holmes lied about what Theranos was capable of as a company to anyone and everyone who would listen, like, over and over and over. She kept saying that they could test um, people's blood using only a few drops. They Uh could do numerous blood tests. And it just wasn't true. At this point, that is total crap. Technology not available. (laughs) Um, And she was actually putting people's lives at risk by knowingly subjecting them to these faulty blood tests. And here's where we get to today's treadmill desk. What was astonishing to me is how many smart, incredibly prominent people bought into what Elizabeth Holmes was selling despite so many red flags. Right. You guys have been saying that like
0: former Secretary of State George Schultz was deeply involved in this Henry Kissinger bought it, Sam Nunn who's a former senator bought into this, Bill Frist who's a former senator and a heart transplant surgeon James Mattis was
1: involved. Um, things would come up, for instance, she wouldn't let anyone see the lab or she would test people's blood and it would take a month to get results or she would never give the results. I mean, time and time again, there were red flags that she was hiding things, that she wasn't being truthful. There was huge turnover at the company because Mm. people would start having ethical issues with what they were doing And then they would want to quit or they would question her and anyone who questioned her got fired and then was forced to sign like incredibly oppressive NDAs. So the question is like, why do we ignore red flags? Yes. Why
0: do we want to believe so much in something or want something so much that despite all the signs, we will just go go forward as if everything is okay? I mean, this is something it's not just you know with companies like Theranos it it comes up in job interviews it comes up when yes. you're when you're looking for an apartment or a house like there are so many areas where red flags are there screaming out for you to pay attention to them yes and we don't
1: you know one one area we talked about this is um in television we sort of observe from afar something is True Detective season two. Yeah. So let's just talk about it. True Detective was an amazing, had an amazing first season on HBO starring Woody Harrelson and um, Matthew McConaughey. Tremendous. We loved it. Season two was not good. Okay. It just wasn't. And we kept asking ourselves, weren't there red flags along the way that Really smart people at HBO were seeing that the season was not shaping up to be a good season. Like, they must have been reading the scripts. They must have been seeing dailies. They must have been watching cuts. How did all these smart, successful people not sort of hold up their hand and go, guys, this season just isn't working? You know what? That question terrifies me every
0: day as we're doing our own show, I have to tell you, because I feel like red flags that people are also
1: ignoring in our show. That's (laughs) true. You know what I mean? Um, But in
0: terms of True Detective, wasn't it just that they all kind of bought into this notion that like we're making something amazing
1: and it sort of looked the same? And I guess the thing is, once you've established this thing is amazing. So if it's Theranos saying this technology is amazing and it's going to change the world or it's this season, this television show is amazing and it's going to win all sorts of awards to be the person to stand up and question it. Is very hard because you really could feel like you're going to look like an idiot. Right. You
0: get into sort of a group thing. Yes. And if you're having reservations, if you are seeing the red flags, if you're thinking this scene where poor Vince Vaughn sheds a tear about the rats in the basement, that, like, if I'm the person who says this isn't brilliant. Right. And then it goes on TV and everyone loves it. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to look like the asshole who doesn't know what he or she is doing.
1: Yeah. So often acknowledging red flags is about trusting your own instincts and your own gut. And I think that's really hard to do. And I I question my gut all the time.
0: And being willing to go against the crowd. Yes. Yes. It's a two step thing. You have to both trust yourself and be willing to be that person who's going to stand up and say the unpopular thing.
1: Yeah. You know, what's interesting in Hollywood about red flags, and I'm sure this is probably true for many people in their various careers, is that sometimes you see the red flags. Yeah. Like, we've been offered jobs or situations where we go, well, we know this person is difficult. We know that person is difficult. We know the timeline on this is very unrealistic, We know this is hard about it or that is hard about it. And we'll go, well, it's still worth it to us to do because we think ultimately, no matter how many red flags there are, it will help our career advance on the other side. But I think it's helpful going in with your eyes open to just say, this is going to be, the red flags inform me this is going to be a hellish
0: experience. Right. Well, and there have also been times that we have seen the red flags and decided to pull back. More often that happens. Much more often. It's really like the pros and cons balance can tell you, you know, where to go. But as you say, if you're going in with your eyes open, it's going to be... Better, at least, if you're aware of the red flags.
1: Yeah, I think we have gotten to a point in our career where more often than not, if we even, like, sense a red flag from 50 miles away, we're like, (laughs) let's just not take that meeting. Yeah. We don't want to deal with it. But there was a time where it made sense for us to do that. Absolutely. Now, of course, Sarah, any conversation about red flags has to include people. Many people have red flags sort of flashing over their heads. (laughs) Right. It's
0: true. We had a friend who was a very good friend at one point in our lives. Um, But when we became friends with her, we noticed that she would always talk about people she used to be friends with. Right. And then they sort of betrayed her in some way. And it was
1: really um, a clear, repetitive pattern. Yeah, and she would just cut them out completely, which is something you and I had never experienced. Right. And we said to ourselves... um, At some point, she's probably going to do that to us. We saw that red flag. And I think kind of emotionally, we pulled back because we were waiting for that to happen. And spoiler alert, it did. (laughs) It certainly did. And we didn't know why. We didn't know what happened. But one day, she just stopped speaking to us. Yeah. And it was sad. But we were prepared because we were aware of that red flag. Yeah. And I mean... So often in relationships, people see red flags like, oh, this guy didn't text me back for three days, but I'm sure he was just really busy. It's like if someone wants to talk to you, they'll talk to you. You know, the perfect um,
0: thing to talk about, I'm just thinking of, is um, Dirty John with red flags.
1: Oh, yes. Amazing podcast called Dirty John. If you haven't listened, you must. It's also going to be a show on Bravo, Created by our friend Alex Cunningham, who's insanely talented. It's starring Connie Britton and Eric Bana. It's going to be unbelievable, and we are
0: so jealous that Alex gets to do this show.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it there were it's about a a relationship, and the guy had a million red flags that the woman just ignored, and her her kids were pointing them out to her, and she just wouldn't listen, and it really led her down a dark path,
0: but. In the moments that she was with him, not all the time, but most of the time, he made her feel really good and made her feel loved and valued and did things for her enough that she could ignore those red
1: flags. So, I mean, that's, I guess, one reason people ignore red flags is because in the moment somebody, you know, shines their light on you and makes you feel good. So what can we do in general to sort of not be people who ignore red flags back away slowly <laughs> back away. <laughs> yeah just kind of ease out of a situation yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i think it's it's evaluating something intellectually not just letting yourself get sucked into group think and maybe consult with someone outside the situation to say hey if you saw this at work Would Mm -hmm. this make you raise an eyebrow or, you know, show them the cut of that show that you're questioning. (laughs) Right. Or if you met
0: this person and they the first night you met them as in Dirty John wanted to sleep in your bed.
1: Maybe that's not yeah.
0: totally kosher.
1: Yes. So we, I want to hear from people if they have ignored red flags in their lives and like what has happened. Yes. I'm, I'm guessing we're going to get some good stories on this.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: I am sure we will. And coming up,
0: we'll be talking to TV and comic book writer Ben Blacker. But first, a word from our sponsor. All right, Liz, now it's time for an interview with an old pal of ours, Ben Blacker. Ben is best known as the creator, with his writing partner Ben Acker, of The Thrilling Adventure Hour, a staged show in the style of old-time radio that ran monthly for 10 years to sold-out crowds, an L.A. staple. With Acker, Blacker has sold pilots to USA, Fox, Nickelodeon, Spike, and other networks and has written on the shows Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and more. They're currently developing a series for a cable network that they're not allowed to talk about and a film for a movie studio that they're also not allowed to talk about. This is a very common thing in Hollywood.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on his own, Blacker is the writer and creator of *Hexwives*, part of the DC Vertigo Comics relaunch. Hexwives is about witches and the insidious ways men control women. He's also the creator and host of the Writers Panel, a podcast in which he talks with writers about the business and process of writing television. The Writers Panel is closing in on 400 weekly episodes. Impressive. Yeah, amazing. Ben, welcome.
2: <laughs> Thank you. So,
1: Ben, you are an OG podcaster. I mean,. The first time I literally ever heard of a podcast was when you asked us to be on your podcast, right? The writers panel. Yeah, we didn't know what it was. Um, Oh my gosh. And I mean, you started it in 2013 and now it's one of the top writing podcasts. So you've interviewed like so many people feature writers, TV, comedy, and drama writers. I remember we were on with Liz Merriweather, who created The New Girl. I mean, huge. Um, so why did you start it? You know, and and tell us like what it's done for you.
2: <laughs> it's it's eaten up a lot of my time. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the big thing. Um, no, you know, I I still love doing it. It's it's amazing to hear you say that. I started in twenty thirteen because I just did the four hundredth episode.
1: Wow, unbelievable! Which is
2: ridiculous. That's um, crazy. But I started it because my writing partner Ben Acker and I were sort of like. Getting in rooms and having meetings, but we were sort of stopping at the when it came to meeting showrunners. Mm. Um, we were doing great with executives, right, right. Um, but we knew a lot of showrunners, and we're like, we know, and we weren't getting staff too. And it was mm-hmm. a very frustrating time. It was early in our career, and we're like, there must be a way to meet showrunners, and we know there's institutional knowledge out there. Yes, there's a way to learn how to do the thing we want to do, which is write television. Uh, we're just not getting the opportunity to do it or talk about it. <laughs> so it just seemed like, you know, podcasts were not really a thing yet. Um, they start, the, the writers panel started as just a series of live events. Uh, oh, I, was doing them, I didn't know yeah, that. I was doing them for A26LA, the uh, uh, nonprofit organization. And they had like a little space where they would let, just let me host a few writers and we'd talk about writing for an hour. And it was great. It was like all I wanted to do. And I remember I did it a couple times sporadically. And then when I said, "I'm okay, I'm going to do a month of these. Mm. And the idea is to record them and do something with them. Um, and we booked, I think Jane Espenson, Damon Lindelof, mm, oh wow, uh, and a couple of other writers. And the person running tickets for A26LA, it was a seventy-five seat room. Forgot to put a cap on the tickets. Oh, so we sold one hundred and fifty tickets. Oh uh-huh. wow! Yeah. Oh my yeah. god! First of all, this is amazing that other people want to hear about this. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily, I. I uh, Chris Hardwick was doing our stage show, The Thrilling Adventure Hour at the time, and said, I just got this space, uh, and you should just come do it there, and we'll record it. And I'm starting a podcast network and put it out there. I was like, oh, oh all this stuff is going on? Okay, great. And then, honestly, it was just momentum <laughs> from there. I just kept getting introduced to new great writers like yourselves who I wanted to talk to and to learn from, and that begat more, and, you know, it's it, that's still the way it's done.
0: And can you tell our listeners what 826LA is?
2: Yes. 826LA is – well, LA is the chapter of uh, 826, which is a national um, after-school and writing program for kids.
1: And, Ben, what um, what themes have come up over and over in, in your panels? You know, you must see emerging trends and <laughs> – the things people complain about again and again, or the <laughs> challenges they face again and again. I'm so, I mean, you must have sort of this big picture view now of the television industry.
2: Yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, especially if you go back and listen from the beginning, which look, there are 400 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be a weekend for you, yeah. let's say. Um, but it's been interesting tracking the way the. Industry has changed in that in the past five years. Like, when I started, there was really no Netflix. Right. There there were really no streaming services. Yeah. Um, The other thing that's been amazing is in the past year or so, I'm getting a lot more women and a lot more people of color. I was going to ask that. Yeah, it really was hard to book that early on. Hard to book, you know, those representatives because they didn't exist as showrunners as much as they do now, and that's been that's been so satisfying. I mean, when I did the three hundredth episode, which was two years ago, I tried. I put word out to fifty different writers, and I wound up with I think maybe fifteen writers, thirteen of which were white guys. Wow! And they were great. They were amazing. Like it was Carlton yeah. Cuse and Mike Shore, and like these great writers, but you know, I don't want to have just the token couple of women and the token person of color. Yeah. Um, When I just did my 400th episode, we did a live panel, and it was eight women, all showrunners, uh, half of them women of color. And it was a phenomenal panel. Like, I still learn something from every episode, but when I have something like that from these women who are getting this opportunity finally and work their butts off... For so long, uh, it's it's inspiring to me and, and and I'm learning so much more.
1: And I love that you're providing a platform for people because then they're introduced to the wider writing public and that's a good thing too.
2: I would hope, you know, like anyone with a strong voice and has an idea for a show and has the tools to run a show should be able to run a show. And if these people are making the show that folks are watching – then they should be represented on the podcast same as it's always been.
0: Yeah. And we shouldn't just be making shows for a bunch of white guys to watch. <laughs> That's true also.
2: I don't know. <laughs> what have we had?
1: Wait, so I don't I can't think of any off the top of my head. What? And Ben, what's amazing about you is, so you're this sort of, this podcaster extraordinaire, but you're really <laughs> a, a dubious TV honor. writer and a comic book writer, and yeah. you've written live shows that have been incredibly successful. I mean, how did you start writing for this broad spectrum of outlets? And well, one, I have to ask if you have a favorite, but two, do you think today, like, television writers need to have more, you know, a, a broader platform of what they do?
2: I think, and this is coming sort of going back to your question to something that I've noticed over the course of the writer's panel, um, I've seen this sort of democratization of writing, mm. where at a certain point people just say, and I think it did start because of streaming when everyone was like, we're telling stories differently, or, and a movie can be eight hours long on a streaming service, yeah. and like writing is writing. And, you know, to, to me, my writing partner and I started writing for the stage Because it was practical. Mm. Um, You know, we weren't really getting traction in TV. We didn't have agents at the time. And this was in 2005. And we started writing a uh, stage show in the style of old-time radio. Uh, It was called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. And... Again, it was all very practical. It was in the style of old-time radio, so we mm-hmm. could ask our actor friends just to hold scripts. Right. They wouldn't have to memorize <laughs> anything. Um, we were sort of dealing with like genre comedy stuff. We had a space western, and we had sort of a Nick and Nora with ghosts segment, and we slammed all these things together, and that lent again to the old-time radio feel. Uh, we got a teeny-tiny orchestra uh, after doing it for a few months who would do backing music and theme songs, um, and this became our life for 10 years. But Incredible. it really was because no one was paying us to write TV. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it, it taught us how to write on a schedule. We put out a new 80-page script every month for 10 years. Wow! Uh, it taught us how to write for actors. It taught us how to produce. It taught us how to deal with people in the industry as a whole who would come to this and go, I don't get it. Like, all right, maybe it's not for you. That's <laughs> well, fine. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it taught us rejection in that way. <laughs> That's very important. It really very is. Important.
1: Rejection is a big part of being <laughs> yeah. a writer in Hollywood. Rejection and criticism. And <laughs> yeah. one of our first jobs, our oh, boss no. told us, "Your job is to take criticism." And I'm so glad he said that because we've never forgotten it. Um, this was on Angel. Um, Jeff Bell told us that, and it it's true. That is your job. So. We've gotten pretty thick skins, <laughs> I'd like to think. I know.
2: You, know. you really have to, right? And, you know, we with Thrilling Adventure Hour, we poured our, our hearts into it for a decade uh, until, you know, we sort of— started making a living doing the other stuff we wanted to do when it just became too much to do everything. But, you know, everything we've done has sort of come out of thrilling. So doing this thing for free for a Mm -hmm. long time, you know, for fun and, you know, making great friends and doing a thing we're really proud of. You know, we did 250 episodes of the podcast. It's still all out there. Um, So doing this thing we're really proud of led to opportunities in the business where, you know, an um, editor at Marvel Comics got in touch and said, can you guys write stuff that's not funny?
1: Oh, wow. We're like,
2: well, if you've seen our show, you know that we can. <laughs> uh, he said, will you write this Wolverine book for me? And I'll hold your hand with it. But it, it was our first comics work. Wow. Uh, and we're like, you know, writing is writing is writing. It's all storytelling. And you're just learning different formats.
1: Well, what I love about what you're saying is that um, sort of the advice of do, do it for free and then someone will pay you. I mean, that is such uh you know, a truism, I think, in Hollywood. It's like you've just got to start doing it. And eventually, if you're good, you will be found and compensated. I
2: think so. And I think to amend that, you know, we heard work for free for a long time uh, in the beginning of our career. And I think there's a difference between work for free and say yes to everything, which I do think is good advice for mm-hmm. people starting out. and make the thing you love to make. Yes. You know, I think that's the thing that people really notice and and want to be a part of because it's exciting. Your passion is in it and people can feel that.
0: Well, and now you have a comic book that you've written on your own um, called Hex Wives. It's about witches and also about the insidious ways men control women, which is, of course, a topic that interests
1: us. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, so how did this come about? Was it inspired by the times we're living in?
2: <laughs> it kind of was. Um this is and I think I, I wrote this to you both uh when I sent you the comic that this is the first thing I've written without a partner in fifteen years.
1: Wow. Which
2: is terrifying.
1: Being part of a partnership, yeah. I can relate to that.
2: Have you have you all written on your own?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we sort of write things on our own and put them together. But right. we haven't yeah. done like and that's a whole what Ben and I thing on our own. own. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So doing this, no. you know, beginning to end on my own was terrifying, and also exhilarating. I mean, at one point, Ben emailed him to ask how it was going, which was very nice of him. And I said, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. He said, well, it should be twice as hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, no, it's a hundred times as hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this was an idea, uh, Hexwise was an idea I'd been sort of toying with for a few years based on a couple of different things, um, one of which was, is like the dumb Hollywood pitch version which is I caught some of an episode of Bewitched uh, mm. when I was uh, watch, flipping through TV one day. And I got to thinking how strange it is that Samantha Stevens is married to this dumb ad man uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and then <laughs> right. living,
2: like, as a suburban housewife. Right,
1: when she's, like, oh, the most God. extraordinary exactly. woman. Yeah. yeah,
2: And she's just so worried about him coming home and her making dinner. Like, right. this isn't... Her mother, And Dora's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, she is, she is married below her. Um <laughs> And that sort of was the spark for, like, what if Samantha didn't know that she were this super powerful witch and was being held as a suburban housewife against her will?
1: Oh. Uh, So the
2: first arc of the story is about – is literal empowerment. It's about her discovering that she and her neighbors are a coven. Um, Awesome. Love it. (laughs) Thank you. When it really started to hit home for me was my wife is a consultant. And so she'll work in a lot of different places and she'll work in a lot of different offices. And she took a job – where she was working out of the organization's office for a a pretty significant amount of time. And she would come home with these stories about the man she was working for who was not a bad boss, but he is one of these guys who failed upward Mm. and took it as his due.
0: We're familiar.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And sort of described the, again, insidious is the only way I can think to say it, the way that he treated the female employees, which was mm-hmm. with this air of condescension and
1: paternalistic An sort of attitude,
2: yeah, exactly. That like sh- she's much smarter than he is, and she would be explaining something, and he would just smile because he wasn't understanding what she mm-hmm. was saying, and he had no intention of executing the thing that they were paying her to come up with, um, and there were from from both my wife and from female friends i would hear about this kind of behavior from men who i don't think they meant to be bad right but i think they you know this is the the patriarchy that we were yes. we're raised in this is what they understood as acceptable behavior yes you know it's it's a far cry from the sort of abusive behavior that we hear about that sort of get making all the noise but it's this built in um Condescension, this built-in, this built-in patriarchal behavior that that men in positions of power will have.
1: Well, I love that you, as a man, are tackling this. It is. It's. I don't
2: feel good about it. I'll be (laughs) honest with you. It was nervous making. It really is. I mean, a lot of the stuff that went into this. Especially when I was conceiving of of the book, was going to my wife and being like, "What are the terrible things that I'm doing right now? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. tell me how I am trying to control you without knowing." And she was like, "All right, <laughs> sit down. I got a list for you."
0: <laughs> Let's talk about mental load. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then it was very important to me that uh, there be a lot of female voices on this book. Uh, my editors are both women. They are amazing collaborators. The stuff that. I'm missing from working with my writing partner on this. I'm getting from them. Uh, they've put so much into this book. My artist is this unbelievable uh, artist. She's Italian. She lives uh, – her name is Mirka Andolfa. She lives in Italy. Um, she did not know what an American suburb looked like, mm. which was interesting. <laughs> uh, like, no, the lawns should be bigger. Yeah. Yeah. bigger but <laughs> she does this – she does amazing character work. My colorist uh, is is a woman who has worked in a lot on a lot of comics, but she's doing her best work that she's ever done. Um, she's elevating every single thing in this book. It's absolutely beautiful. So mm-hmm. I'm lucky to be surrounded by someone. A friend of mine just read the book and said, "You're lucky to have this coven around uh-huh. you." And oh, I really great. am. That's, I really, really am.
1: And that comes out in October, right? Comes
2: out on Halloween.
1: Oh, okay, fitting.
2: Yes, exactly. No mistake. Uh, the thing I have learned about comic books is that pre-orders are very important. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I would like to write this book for 100 issues. Mm-hmm. You know, I have so many stories to tell in this world with these characters. Um, the only way I get to do that is if this sounds appealing to people.
1: And if where can they pre-order?
2: They call up their local comic shop, whatever that may be, and say, please pre-order Hexwives for me. And then they go in on Halloween and they pay four bucks and they get it. If they don't know where their local comic shop is, they can go to comicshoplocator.com, put oh. in the zip code, Uh, and find their local comic shop. If they don't know their zip code, I can't help them. Okay. (laughs) Now,
0: is this also something that you could pre-order online through Amazon? Should we not be talking about that because we (laughs) want people to go to their comic book stores?
2: (laughs) We do want people to go to their local comic book shops uh, (laughs) because they need all the help they can get uh, as their local bookstores as well. Uh, But if you're a person who reads digital comics, go to comixology.com dot com c-o-m-i-x-o-l-o-g-y and that's where everybody gets their digital comics and it is actually available right now to pre-order
1: excellent Yeah. now ben before we let you go we have um we always ask our guests um what makes them happier in hollywood do you have one thing that makes you happier in hollywood
2: I was thinking about this because, as you know, I'm a longtime fan of this program. Um, so I was preparing. Uh, and this program does make me happier in Hollywood. Aww. I like to drive around and hear <laughs> yes. your voices. Uh, it's, it's very soothing. <laughs> but I was thinking about, do you remember um, City Slickers, the movie City Slickers? Yes, yeah. Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal asked Jack Palance what the meaning to life is. Mm. And he held up his finger. And Billy Crystal obviously made a hilarious joke. Um, But I think – and what Jack Palance meant was it's one thing. Mm. And everybody has to figure that out for themselves. Mm. And I do think that is genuinely true. I mean, I think each of us has a different way of being happier in Hollywood. Um, I love the work. I love working. There's nothing that makes me happier than breaking a story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I also love to take four hours off and watch a baseball game. Mm -hmm. I love to play in my kitchen and, you know, make big meals for friends. Uh, These are the things that make me happy. But I think every person finds the thing that they love, and I think it's just about making time for that thing.
1: like that. Making time for the thing you love. We should all do that. I'm going to do that this weekend. I just have to figure out what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thank you. We always recommend your podcast to everyone. Uh, Guys, you've got to listen to the Writers Panel because it really has just information... 400 episodes worth of information if you're interested in any aspect of the business. Um, and Hexwives, we encourage everybody to pre order. Say again where it's available online and if you can't go to a comic store.
2: Go to Comixology. Comixology. C O M I X O L O G Y.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Ben. Thank you.
1: Next up, we'll share a parent friendly productivity hack, but first,
0: an ad break. Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks
1: and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hollywood. netsuite.com Hollywood. netsuite.com Hollywood. Okay, Sarah, it is time for this week's Hollywood Hack, and it comes from me today. This is my hack, and it's work while your kid is slowly falling asleep. I love this so much. <laughs> so this came about because, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but we also want to spend time with our children, and we li- I like to cuddle with Jack before bed and have that bedtime routine. Um, and so what I do sometimes, especially when we have writing to do, is he like lays down to go to sleep and I just sit next to him in bed in the dark with my computer and I just write while he falls asleep. And what's really nice about it is that we're together. He feels like, oh, mom's right here. Um, But it's like I don't have the temptation to turn on the TV or play on my phone. I get to just sort of sit there and write with my little boy next to me and it's just very calm and peaceful, and I'm very focused. Um, and it's a great way to get work done, I have to say. <laughs> I implemented this the
0: other night. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. I brought my iPad in while I was putting Violet to bed because I sit in the rocking chair while she falls asleep. Mm. And I sing doo-doo, which is mm-hmm. basically just saying a lullaby in doo-doo form. Um, and I do it. I'll do it for half an hour until she falls asleep sometimes. Wow. Um But it was so nice because I could just work away on my iPad um, while she was, you know, slowly conking out.
1: Yeah, it's just peaceful. Um, Now, I will say a disadvantage to this now is that now that Jack can read, sometimes he'll look (laughs) over and he'll see what I'm writing. And it might be a very adult thing that I'm (laughs) writing. And he's like, what's that, mom? Um, So I have to watch that. Um, but um, he's certainly getting the idea of what it's like to be a TV writer. (laughs) He's experiencing it up close and personal. (laughs) And that is it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood.
0: For questions or comments, email us or send us a voice memo at happierinhollywood at gmail.com.
1: Thanks for listening, and please subscribe if you haven't already. A special thanks to Ben Blacker. Be sure to check out his podcast, The Writer's Panel. Also, his comic book, Hex Wives, will be out in October. Thank you to our producer, the amazing Chuck Reed, and everyone at Sancola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram, at Sancola Sound. Thank you to the awesome ad team at Panoply.
0: Thank you to our assistant, Mary Merkins, for helping us juggle the insanity of our lives these days. And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at S. Fain and Liz is at Liz Craft. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Liz Craft. And I'm Sarah Fane.
1: Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. Sarah, if we have the Handy dot uh, com ad again, we need to talk about how you and I were house cleaners—not <laughs> great house cleaners. No, <laughs> I got complained about often. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I did too.
0: <laughs> Good times.